Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle Podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, John Kay. Thanks, I'm John Kay, Recovered Compulsive Overeater. I was going to say from Los Angeles, but I don't have to say that here. I'm going to send some pictures around uh, to show you that I earned my seat here. And um, I, I always mention that I'm one of the few people who, who sends around pictures of people other than themselves in this packet. And it's because these are, are sponsees I had that are dead. And I just want to remind everybody that this is the program I'm in, the one with the body, the body count, you know. And uh, one of them was a guy named Jim B., Jim Brady, and uh, he was 600 pounds. And uh, he died in a fire because he couldn't get out. He was too big to get out. And so having bummed you all out, <laughs> I just, uh, you, you'll see that most of the time I do, I do what I love, my favorite two pages in the, uh, in the big book, are 132-133, and it says, We've been speaking to you of serious and sometimes tragic things. We've been dealing with alcohol in its worst aspects, but we are not a glum lot. If newcomers could see no joy or fun in our existence, they wouldn't want it. We absolutely insist upon enjoying life. We are sure God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. But it is clear we made our own misery. God didn't. Avoid then the deliberate manufacturer of misery. And God knows I did that. <laughs> so you guys on the podcast don't hear where they do this wonderful reading that talks about how the people who pick the speakers here try to get young people and old people and people of various ethnic groups and sexualities. And then I walk up. <laughs> old, straight, white guy. I guess it was just uh, it was my time. But I want to... <laughs> I, I want to thank uh, I want to thank actually Susan for asking me to speak. We had we had like the exchange program today. Susan came and spoke at, at Kitchen Sink for me, and I I am speaking for her today. And um, and so yeah, I, I'm not gonna um, I'm not gonna tell too much of my my story today because uh, a lot I see a lot of people here who can move their lips to my story. And if uh, anybody in the podcast wants to hear my life, uh, I'm up there a bunch of times. I thought I'd talk more today about about the steps, about the big book, and um, I'm going to try and stop a little early. Whoever does the 10-minute thing, I'm going to try and remember to stop like even five minutes earlier than that, take questions, because a lot of times they get up here and I just get running on, and next thing you know, there's no time for questions, so I want to try and do that a little. Um, you know, for those of you guys, I see a lot of people here who are younger than, than the amount of time I've been in program. It makes me feel old, Michael. <laughs> um, well, I came in, I've been in two different OA programs. The first one I was in was the one where you come in, you listen to speakers, then you, you talk, you, you speak about yourself, and you go to, go to you know, fellowship afterwards, and nobody ever talked about the steps or the big book. And in fact, we used to make fun of these old farts who would get up and talk about the big book and the steps. And then I went to another program for seven years because I wasn't getting abstinent with that wonderful attitude, and uh, hard to believe. And when I came back, the only people that were still here were those old farts who were reading the big book and the steps, and, and, and I really think that the answers are here. You know, it doesn't have to be this glum thing, but this is the answers, I think. I am, um, 
I'm a member of a phone group called Vision for You. I don't know if, how many people know that they, they meet every day. They have a phone meeting every, every day, Monday to Friday. Uh, actually, I have two of them, one 7 a.m. Eastern, one 7 a.m. Uh, Pacific. And we read a, a paragraph or two from the big book. And, and Friday was the first paragraph from More About Alcoholism, which is one of my favorites, where it says, I just want to read it. More of us, most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. No one likes to think he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows. Therefore, it is not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession for every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. And, man, that is me, uh, was me in, in a nutshell. Years of trying to control this, you know, got this great IQ. I was given this by God. There's nothing I have a, a right to claim, you know, any pride in. And I could do so many things with that brain except this, because, you know, there's a lady named Marcy who used to live here. She lives in Thailand now who always said, you, you can't fix a broken brain with a broken brain. And, and that just didn't work. And for me, it was that way. And the countless vain attempts... Um, you know, there's countless vain attempts before I came to the program, and then there were countless vain attempts within programming, because my story included a long period of relapse. And I always like to call it a relapse cycle, you know, because you'll hear in this book, you'll hear about relapse, but it tends to be, okay, they went out and did that, and then they came back, and they got better, you know, happy ending. Um, for a lot of us in the food, it, uh, it's a relapse cycle, a week or two on, a week or two off, a month on, a month off, and it was just miserable. And that's where the countless vain attempts thing just hits me between the eyes because I couldn't do it myself. And that was the thing I took the longest time to realize that, you know, that I have a disease, you know, and to understand, you know, the first step, you know, we're powerless over food. Our lives have become unmanageable. You know, the concept that I was powerless, I would say I was powerless. I really thought I was, you know, you know, I'm a good little student. You tell me I'm powerless. I'll power it that back to you. But then I would say I was powerless and then I'd go eat. And then I'd come back. And then I'd say, I was powerless. And then I'd go eat and come back. Well, you know, how powerless did I think I was? Was I saying, oh, the hell with OA, I'm leaving, I'm not coming back? No. What I was saying to myself, even though I didn't want to admit it, was, I'm going to go do this, and when I'm done, I will come back, and I will get abstinent again. You know? And the reason I thought that is I had the empirical proof that I could do it. Because I had done it over and over and over. It's the old joke about, you know, I, uh, I, I'm really good at quitting smoking. I've done it a thousand times. Well, I had gotten abstinent a thousand times. But the thing was, I really wasn't abstinent. I was on a years-long in-and-out, in-and-out cycle. But I had convinced myself because I saw the evidence that I knew if I went out and when I came back, I might have to go to 90 meetings in 90 days, get a new sponsor. But eventually, I would grind that train to a halt again. But the moment that train was halted, I was setting up the next one because I really didn't believe I'm powerless, okay? I talked about Jim in there, in, in those pictures, Dan in these pictures, some of you po folks who remember Murray. Um, uh, these are three people that were really smart people and they're dead as a direct result of this disease. And my, my buddy Murray, he was, he was literally a rocket scientist. There were, there were things on the moon that Murray put there. And I would love to be able to go in, in a time machine and go back to the point where Murray picked up that first compulsive bite and said, Murray, please don't do this. If you do this, you're going to go on for a slip. You're going to come back. You're going to get a couple of weeks on, and then you're going to go out, and then you're going to come back, and then you're eventually going to leave because you get discouraged to go away, and then you're going to die. 
you know, and that's the way it happens. It doesn't happen like it happens for alcoholics and drug addicts where they overdose or they run a car into a tree. It's a slow process, but once that starts, it's inexorable. And all those three guys who I talk about who are dead, it wasn't like they never had it. They had it and they let it go. They gave it up, and 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 I know today through all my work, I am not special. As much as I want to think so, as much as my mommy told me when I was five, I am not special. And if it can happen to them, it can happen to me, you know. And I need to realize that the powerlessness has to be framed differently for me, you know. When I first came in the program, you used to always hear this phrase, we don't eat no matter what, like rah-rah. And um, I heard somebody say their sponsor had a better way of saying it. They said, if you're a compulsive eater and you've made food an option, it's always going to be the only option. It's going to be the path of least resistance. Because if you have a choice of going through like turmoil and upheaval or, or something in pain, or eating, eating something that you like and it's going to make you feel better, it's a no-brainer. Who wouldn't choose that if it's an option? And so for me... It had to change to be food is just not an option. I can enjoy it. I can like it. It's part of keeping me alive, but it's not an option for, you know, heavy emotional things. And then, you know, in the second step, I had such trouble with this in the beginning, you know, where it talks about, you know, I like to flip it around and talk about I, uh, I'm insane, <laughs> and that's why I need help from somebody else other than myself, a power greater than myself. And when I heard insanity, for a long time I had trouble with that because, you know, it's the, the insanity we have here is a different kind of insanity. It's a very narrow insanity. Most of the people here are highly functioning people, except in this one area, just like I was, you know. And, you know, if it was a nice, broad insanity where, you know, I come to in the middle of San Vicente, you know, uh, not knowing how I got there, there'd be part of me that said, man, this brain's messed up. I better be careful. But because I can be so you know, high functioning in other areas, I want to rely on my brain, but it doesn't work, you know. And the greatest definition I heard that really hit me for alcoholism and addiction that uh, of insanity was this, this uh, definition that said, insanity is a state of mind which prevents normal perception. And if you think about it, that is absolutely perfect, you know. It describes, you know, Jim in More About Alcoholism, who puts the whiskey in the milk. The jaywalker, Fred, who has these, you know, strange mental blank spots. And the thing about it, uh, uh, if you think about what sanity is, we, have, we make a thousand decisions all the time, every day, right? You know, I'm going to go here, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, you know. We make that based on our perceptions, which we do very well because we have crystal clear perceptions, except in this one area where my disease takes it and corrupts the data on which I'm making my decisions. And perfectly good decisions like, wow, you know, if I'm an alcoholic, if I put a glass of whiskey in milk, I, I'll be fine, right? That, we all read that story and think it's crazy. But you know who thought it was crazy too, probably? Jim. Just not until the next day. And he did the kind of thing all of us have done. What the hell did I do? I said I wasn't going to do that anymore. You know? And that's the insanity. And so for me, it meant I had to reach out and get help. And when I came in, I was a real... I called myself a raving atheist. I, I know now I wasn't really atheist. I was agnostic. Um, I always joke. I said, I, I can't be atheist because I don't have that kind of faith. <laughs> you know? Because if you think about it, the definition of an atheist says there is no God. And to which I will always say, prove it. And you can't say prove there is, that's a separate question. And if you can't, you're working on faith. I can go beats the hell out of me. 
I have something now, but I had such bad memories of my youth, I had, I wanted nothing to do with that. So when I came in, luckily a guy said to me, leave it out. Don't worry about God. Just keep coming. You could be here until you're 110. Nobody's ever going to tell you you have to believe anything or what to believe. It's going to be fine. And because he said that, it allowed me to just sort of take it in, you know. And... Um, and, and so if you're having trouble with that, I call it the G word, don't worry about it. You know, it, 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 it's, you know, like it says in the AA 12 and 12, the hoop you have to drive, uh, jump through is, is larger than you think. It's just about, I always say that this program does not need a, a definite belief in any kind of an actual higher power. It needs for me to believe I'm the lesser power. That's the thing. That I can't. I need help. I need help from somebody else. Something else. And if in the beginning all you can do is make it the next person, the person who's got a day of absence when you don't have any, then that's fine, because that's what we're all here to do is to help each other. And um, and and so in the beginning, I think that's the most important thing. And if you ever if you have a concept of a higher power, that's great. If you don't, don't worry about it. I I always say that I believe everybody. No matter what you believe in a higher power, you probably think it's been around since before 1935, right? Well, you know what? People were dying of alcoholism without any hope of, of, of recovery until 1935. And the, some of those people were, were priests, ministers, rabbis, nuns, cantors. You know, if it was simply a matter of a conscious contact with a higher power alone they wouldn't have needed to come to the program. And I've met all those kind of people in the program. We had a birthday party session last time with a priest, and a, a priest and a rabbi. And the point is, is it's more about a conscious contact with something. And, and for a lot of us, the, the, the first thing we have to do is deconstruct our concept of God that we were handed us. Most of us have gotten a hand-me-down God. You know, I got something from my mother who learned it in 1930-something, who got it from her mother, you know, and it goes back and back, and, and, and it's, it, how can you have any feeling of connection with that, you know, and, and there's a lot of other things for me personally. I have trouble with a male god, because I come from a line of two, you know, two sides of my family that are angry Irish male alcoholics, so the idea of a kind, loving god and male just, is, it's not going to work for me, but... I I just knew I needed to just keep coming. And in the beginning, that was the most important thing. And to reach out. I always said when I was getting abstinent, I needed a sponsor more than I needed a higher power at, you know, in the beginning. Now, the reality is my sponsor was a bridge to my higher power. But at that moment, I needed that. It's the great thing to me about when they talk about a spiritual thing in this program in 12 steps, it's a very grounded out, I believe, a grounded out spirituality. It isn't like we go up onto a mountaintop and, you see, because I can't do that, you know? I always say, if I go up onto a mountaintop and I want to commune with God, I can come down, have, having meditated, convinced that God told me chocolate's a vegetable. <laughs> you know? The trouble is, then I call my sponsor and he's like, yeah, no, nah, not for today. I don't think so. But you see, that's the thing, is we can talk about prayer and meditation, but when I go to meditate, I don't know what's the voice of my higher power. And what's the voice of my disease just doing a really good impression of my higher power? I need to have other people to bounce it off of. And that's what the program tells me I should do. And, you know, and then it talks about, you know, the thing, I had the hardest time in the beginning with, with the third step about, you know, turning my will over. I just, I had trouble grasping that. You know, the whole, I like, turn it over. I always say, if you turn something over twice, it's right side up again. So I don't think that's... <laughs> but, um... 
I, I, I read something in the AA 12 and 12 that, and I forget how it said it, but it hit it perfectly. I turned around the concept of, of, of turning it over to instead being sort of the converse of that, which is just to remove the blockage of self-will, you know? Get out of the way. Quit trying to run the show. Trying to run everything. I come from a crazy alcoholic family of my youth, so control was very important. I needed to be my higher power because it was a matter of life and death, and it isn't anymore. And I can trust that everything's happening, you know, the way it's supposed to. As a with line from Robert Browning, "God's in his God's in his place, and all's right with the world," or something like that. And and I believe that, you know, and I it, it it changes how you think about life, you know, you know, you realize you don't have to be spending your time, you know, like a salmon swimming upstream with life. You you know, yes, you try to do what you can, but you know, trust to God, uh, trust, you know, uh, you know, road ashore, you know. Um, and, and to me, that's you know, a, sort of an important thing. Um, it, it's just an amazing thing. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in my second. I'm ending up my second semester. I'm getting my drug and alcohol uh, counseling certificate, and to just see the scientific proof of all the things we've been here. I've been hearing for a long time in AA and OA about the fact that this is a disease, and it really is. It isn't something we say to make ourselves feel good. It is a disease. There's now scientific proof of the things that were written in this book in 1935, and we're finding out more every day about the, the situation with, with uh, compulsive eating. I'm not going to b- bore you with the whole thing, but there's ghrelin uh, and leptin and all these, these things that cause us problems. I have a physical allergy and if I want to get relief from that I have to do the things I need to do I love on you know in the 10 step promises you know you guys have probably all heard the, the nine step promises a lot but the 10 step promises and I'm not going to read them all they're on the bottom of page 84 on top of 85 but the line that is to me the goal I think of everybody that should be the goal for everybody in program besides getting to a healthy body weight is to be placed in a position of neutrality with the food, you know? That, to me, is the gift. To, to not have to feel like you've got to run away from it or you've got to treat it separately or whatever. And it hit me one day that the, the most blazingly simple thing about how do you get placed in a position of neutrality with the food, it's really simple. You have to give up all of the foods with which you cannot be neutral. Right? Isn't this just like basic logic? And but you know, for so long I, I didn't want to do that. And I still have trouble with some. I always talk about most of you guys have heard the concept of red light, yellow light, green light foods, and I always say, Well, I know what my red light ones are and I know what my green light ones are, and ninety percent of my yellow light foods are red light foods I'm still screwing around with, you know? <laughs> and they're making my life difficult. And if I really want the freedom and I want to surrender. I have to be willing to, to go to any lengths. It's, it's right in the book. Go to any lengths with the desperation of drowning men. Half measures avail us nothing. The thing that makes this so hard for food, in my opinion, I wrote an article a couple of years ago, I should more than that now, uh, for an outside website that does all kinds of addiction, and it was called Food is Deadlier Than Drink. And I talked about why I believe, as a person who's recovering in two different programs, this is so much harder, and for a lot of reasons. It's with us from birth. It's societally acceptable. There's, there's two networks out there devoted to our addiction thing, right? The food network and the cooking network, and, and all these food porn when you turn on, uh, on commercials and stuff, you know? And you know what you never see at the end of one of those, those commercials? You never see, please eat responsibly, <laughs> right? 
But we, we have no trouble believing that in other areas. Right? But the, the thing that I believe makes this disease harder is the manner in which it delivers the pain. You know? You know, if there's a good thing to be said about alcohol or drug addiction, it slams you down into the pavement and you pulls your bloody head up and says, okay, do you get it? And then once in a while, you'll go, oh my God, what am I doing? That's what happened to me. What am I doing, right? Not every day, but just once in a while. And then finally it clicks. This disease delivers slow, dull, chronic pain. The kind of pain that if you've got a good brain, you just keep moving those goalposts. You keep moving those goalposts. Okay, I'm never going to get to 200. I'm never going to... Okay, well, I'm never going to get to 210. I'm never going to... You know, and on and on and on. And it, it is a disease that allows us or makes us continually accept that which was previously unacceptable, right? The, and the problem is, is that the, the disease's pain makes us uncomfortable enough we know we should do something about it. But often it doesn't make us uncomfortable enough to be willing to go to any lengths, the stuff it says in here, in the book. And that's what makes this disease so hard, is we have, we have to almost pull ourselves up to that point. You know, I heard said, you know, the, the elevator, you can get off the elevator at any floor, you know, because it, it just, it's not going to end, I can guarantee you. You know, I, I remember talking to, to, to Jim, the guy I, I sponsored who was 600 pounds, I said to him, if I could get in a time machine and take you back to when you were in college, and I told you you were going to be 650 or 600 or 650, whatever he was, you'd laugh at me. Because nobody goes from 200 to 600. But you go from 2 to 210 to 220 to 230, and, and it keeps happening. That makes this, this disease so hard. There are so many more things. I don't have the time to talk about how many of them, you know. I lead retreats. I take the first 15 minutes and do nothing but talk about how hard this is. Not because I want to bring anybody down, but I just wish somebody had said that to me when I was struggling. I would have felt so much better. Because, I mean... There's a natural human nature if you're going to get up here at a podium and you're standing on a riser and everything to, to, to be just nothing but positive. And so the sound of, of saying something like that could be seen as not positive, but it is positive. It's positive because it's telling people and validating, yeah, this is hard. But it's not hard forever. You know, if it was as hard as it was for me in my first months and weeks in program as it is now, I wouldn't be abstinent. I'm not a masochist, you know. But the thing is, to get to the place where it's easy, you got to go through the place where it was hard first. And nobody says that enough. We don't want to acknowledge, we want to almost pander to people's disease and say, hey, it may suck a while. You may have days where you've got to do white-knuckle abstinence, but guess what? If you do white-knuckle abstinence and you hold on, it will pass. You pick up, it's not going to pass. It's going to be the same thing over and over, and you'll have just done another lap around the track. And, and so it does get better. But then the other part of this, you know, talking about the first three steps and, and you know, and the tools, I think are, the tools are sort of an adjunct to the first three steps about getting, getting abstinent uh, and dealing with it. I, 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 I did, I, they do these things called special, Sunday special editions with the uh, Light um, Vision for You. And I did one a while back. It's, it's like a talks. And I did one called um, uh, uh, Using the 15 Steps. And what, uh, what that was about is that the first three steps are different if you're brand new or you've been around a while. You know, the first three steps for me now are I am powerless over people, places, and things. I am still nuts and I still need help and I need to have a higher power. When I was new, it was all about I can't put the damn food down. What am I going to do, you know? 
And it's hard. We, we, again, we have, an, we have an allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind, you know? And, you know, like Lori, my, Lori C. says, you know, that means I can't stop once I start and I can't stop from starting again, you know? And, 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 and I always say to people, you know, think about it for a minute. Imagine what cancer would be like if you, if you had, uh, you know, also had that as a denial and an obsession to not want to stop how hard it would be. But then the other part is, if you, I learned in my first week in program, somebody said, nothing changes if nothing changes, you know, and I needed to remember that I have to do the work, and that's where these steps come in, you know, steps four and five, doing, doing the fourth step and the fifth step. You know, I always say, this program does require faith. It doesn't mean you can't be an agnostic. The faith is faith in the program, because there's so many things you do here that you, you when you're doing them, you don't understand, what the hell is this going to have to do with my food? But when you come out the other side, you go, oh my God, this was exactly what I needed to do. So you have to have the faith in the process and that the people who came before you aren't going to lie, that, that this will help. And the fourth and fifth step was a perfect example of that. I, I turned it into this huge thing and I was so, it was so amazing when I was done. But then the fourth and fifth step helped highlight the things that need to be in my sixth and seventh, my character defects, you know? And I always like to say, I don't like that phrase, character defects. It's a little on the negative side. But I figure Bill probably probably fought them down from sin, which if I saw sin up there, I'd have never stayed. But I like, you know, if you a lot of us grew up in crazy childhoods. And for me, my character defects are really defense mechanisms, you know? These weren't insane things. These were, these were sane things in insane situations. And now, though, I don't have to do those anymore. And again, this is one of those places where I have to have the faith that these people tell me, the faith that if I'm willing to be entirely ready to give these up, they will be supplanted by something that's going to work so much better for me. Because I was my own worst enemy for a lot of years. I was in program, but I wasn't working the steps, and I was my own worst enemy. So working on those, it, it really made the difference. And then going and getting um, and, and doing amends, uh, again, a wonderful experience. Not in the beginning. You know, as soon as you do a couple, though, you begin to see. Because people on the, on the whole want to be magnanimous. And, they want, and then you, you can see, wow, you know, this didn't kill me. And then I got better. And then, you know, uh, and then 10, 11, and 12, living in 10, 11, and 12, you know, continuing to constantly be willing to make amends as soon as I do something and to seek, you know, to, you know, um, you know, to, to uh, you know, figure out my higher power's wish for me. I think the most important word in the 12 steps is only in the 11th step, praying only for knowledge of his will for us. Because I, uh, God was Santa Claus for me when I came in. Okay, I got this list here, God. And if you give me anything in this list, then I'll believe in you. And and if you don't, then you're no good. And and then also, I want you to explain these things that, that make me wonder if there's a God. You know, don't work like that. I got to have some faith in that. And then to 12, you know, helping others, you know, being a part of that and, um, you know, trying to do the best uh, best I can, you know, and and in and, and passing it along because it was here for me. And if I'm not there, it's not going to be there for somebody else. And if this was 100 years ago, I'd have been dead for 20, 30 years, you know, but I'm really happy that we're here. I'm here now because of that. And the final part of, of step 12, you know, you know, uh, you know, the part about you know, practicing these principles in all our affairs. All of this is blah, blah. If I walk out the door and cut somebody off in traffic and give them the finger, go home and yell at my wife or this or that. And my favorite story about that is um, a guy named Don P, who a lot of you guys know here. 
Um, when I we first started doing the podcast ten years ago, I I, I sort of <laughs> took over this meeting for a while and was getting all people like Michael and people like that to speak who I wanted the country and the world to hear. Roy, another one, um, and I wanted Don so bad because he's got great recovery. And I came to him. I said, Don, I really want you to speak at Light a Candle. And he said, Okay, when is it? And and he and I said five thirty Saturday night. He says, I'm sorry, John, I got a rule with my wife. Saturday nights are hers. You know, and I go. There it is. Practice these principles. What's Don going to do? Tell his wife to go screw? He's going to go tell everybody what a great program he's working? <laughs> you know, to me, that was it. It's about carrying this on and, and continuing to do it. And again, I went over what I wanted to do. <laughs> so I'm going to stop and see if anybody has any questions. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, sure. <laughs> the hand went up quick. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that is hard. It, it, it's very hard. I I also share sometimes. Oh yeah, okay. Uh, I'm, I used to always be the one saying that. Uh, uh, the person was asking about what happens when you have a physical allergy to almost all foods, and and, and I I was just sharing about this that that first sentence I read uh, uh, from more about alcoholism where it talks about nobody likes to be bodily and mentally different from his fellows. Well, I also have to admit I am bodily and mentally different from my fellows in OA. There's people here who can eat things I can't, and vice versa. And and there's a lady I love who I have no belief she's lying. She says she can eat all foods moderately. God bless her. I truly wish I could, but I can. And uh, in a case like that, I think you've got to work with a sponsor, especially a nutritionist. And, you know, I'm a huge believer in go to professionals. I, you know, was talking to a woman who is a, you know, had an advanced doctorate in nutrition, and she's in program, and she said... I believe everybody should go to a professional. Why would I, with my advanced degree, go to a plumber to ask what I should be eating? Which is all of us. We're all plumbers of one kind or another, right? You should go to a professional. And whatever that professional says, then that just has to be it. It has you. Some people have to have a tighter uh, wall around what they do than other people. Some people can be more laissez-faire. You know, I was in a, another program for seven years, so some people here were with me. Um, and and they have a much tighter food plan. And one of the things they say in their opening is, for those of us whose disease has reached a critical level, we feel we need to do this. And for some people, the disease has reached the critical level where you do have to do more, and you can't, you know. And you know, a couple of weeks ago at Serenity Sunday, somebody came up to take a chip and uh, after having had a relapse, and she said, I had a relapse because I wanted to be so-and-so who, who shares that she eats all food moderately, but she couldn't, you know, and that's, you have to be willing to be rigorously honest about what you can do and what you can't, and you got to do it with somebody else, because, you know, left to me, you know, I'm giving the inmates the keys to the asylum if I'm figuring it out myself, so... Yes, hey, thank you. Hi. Um, on the subject of amends, you had talked about, mm-hmm. can you tell us about the number of rounds? Well, I guess my question is, are there any amends, people you harmed, and you didn't make an amends? And if so, why? Are there any amends I, I didn't uh, make? Uh, the if so, why? Well, here's what, I, I'm a huge believer in this. I've heard this story a thousand times. That when you're making your amends list out, make three three columns. One is the people you're willing to make amends with, to right now. The middle one is people I'm not really willing to make amends to just yet. And then the third is the no way in hell list, right? <laughs> but what happens is as you start to do them and you get the positive feedback, not, not all the time, but most of the time, then some of those that are in column two percolate to column one and then on and on 
And I've only had like one or two because I've moved across the country and I haven't been able to find certain people. Uh, there's, there's one person I really like to make amends to. I don't know her last name. I don't remember her last name. And But for the most part, I really try. And I was taught, you know, I remember in this, our big book workshop, you know, they talked about whenever possible, make them face-to-face if you can. It, you telephone only if you have no choice. And then the other thing I was told is if it's somebody who's passed away, you, if you can, go to the grave. Make amends there, you know. Who says they're not hearing it, you know? So, I know if that helps. Anybody else? Michael and then... Yes. Go ahead. Thanks, John. So, um, you, you seem to... Uh, I have a busy head. And <laughs> have a busy head as well. Mm-hmm. And I know you're a busy guy. You do a lot of service. Yeah. Um, so, in, in your busyness, how do you let go of the outcome and control? And number two... What do you do to calm the busy head other than get into action? Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. Well, how do I calm a busy head and how do you let go of, of things? You know, that's it's been years of that. I went to another program to deal with my control issues and um, that that I ha- I can do my best and then I can walk away and, and that's it. You know, I'm chair of the intergroup right now. I've had to, to do certain, say, okay, here's what I think. And guess what? Sometimes I've took, brought things to the board and say, here, I got this great idea. And, there, and everyone on the board, nah, not a good idea. <laughs> well, you can only laugh at that point and go, well, you know, and I didn't get offended. I go, obviously not as good of an idea as I thought. And But I have to do my part. That's what I was taught to do, you know, to be willing to do my part and let go of the results and to realize maybe it's not supposed to happen my way, you know. And, and, you know, there's that great line, rejection is God's protection. Sometimes I look back. One of the good things about getting to be an old geezer like me is you look back over a lifetime and you can see some of the things that you were so bitterly disappointed about turned out to be the best things that ever happened to you. Or they were part of a chain that ended up to be one of the best things. And so it just helps me now. I just try to do it and let go. I do have the problem with the busy head. Me, uh, uh, you know, meditation is really tough for me. I've got an A-type a personality, a little ADHD thing, and it's not easy. So i got time, I guess. Yes. Um, can you talk about the transition from, I love how you said, um, like, our God or our higher power has been passed on from generation to generation and just, like, letting those ideas go and developing new. Right. Well, yeah, sure. Uh, how did I uh, work on changing my, my uh, view of a higher power? Well, again, like I said, I had to, to sort of get rid of what was there. You know, at the end of the day, nobody really knows. And we have to trust. We have to try, you know, you know, there's books, there's Bibles, there's there's this, there's that. And a lot and a lot of people willing to tell you what those books mean, by the way. <laughs> uh, and they usually want money, too, as a matter of fact. But um, that's a George Carlin bit. Um but that, at the end of the day, it's about that quietness and trying to figure out, you know. I had to change the concept of, of, of an external higher power. It just didn't work for me. It's the, for me, it's the little voice inside, you know. I had a brother who was a born-again Christian, and we were driving one day, and he's like, he's quoting literally chapter and verse. Well, you know, it says this about this, and, and I said, Bob... I'm in a 12-step program. We just got this annoying little voice that sits right there. And when you're doing something you know you shouldn't, it's almost like fingernails on chalkboard. And you just know. And and to me, that voice is a big part of it. And to me, also, it's about I want to rise above the level of an animal. <laughs> and I don't mean the animal. No, but, but you know... 
we, we, we are bred. We are literally the end of, of generations of things. I may, be, I may be the descendant of some caveman who shoved his best friend in front of a saber-toothed tiger so he could live. And those are genes in me, right? But not really, but that kind of thing. The idea of, of a, a higher essence and a higher being, yeah, I know, but... What I mean is, you, you hear about truly good things happening, or you hear, you hear about guys in, in battle who jump on hand grenades to save their buddies, knowing they're going to die. You know, that is good at its absolute essence, isn't it? And to me, animals don't do that kind of thing. It, it's a piece of God. Piece of God says, go do this. There's going to be an answer for you on this, you know? And for me, that's, that's the thing that changed. And, and, and I had to, for, I can only speak for myself. We have to figure this out for ourselves. Nobody can do it for you. Nobody can pull up either a, a non-program book or a program book and say, here's what God is. Because it isn't. It's God, it's, and I'll, I'll wrap up, page 45 in the big book, the thesis sentence, you know, it says this book is, is to help you find a power greater than yourself that will help you with your problem. And for many years that didn't help me, didn't help those priests, ministers, and rabbis until they came here, they did this work, and then folded it into a higher power. Anyway, thank you. <laughs>